Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. Welcome back, everybody. We appreciate you taking time to join us for another edition of Midrats. Today is a pre-recorded show, so there'll be no chat room or phone calls, but as our guest is a Marine, what more do you really need? Today, we're going to cover the spectrum from peacetime exercises to wartime combined operations where successfully integrating multinational forces, it's not a pickup game. To do it right requires leaders and institutions, years of practice together, building trust and demonstrating capabilities. This is true of all military endeavors, but especially true when moving forces ashore during amphibious operations and that's what we're going to go into in detail. When you look at our constellation of allies, partners, and friends along the shores of the Indo-Pacific Theater, since 2015, the United States Marine Corps Forces Pacific has led a multinational Pacific Amphibious Leaders Symposium called PALS. Today, we're going to dive into not just the symposium itself, but to the broader topic of combined amphibious operations in the Indo-Pacific with our guest, Major Evan Zach Ota, United States Marine Corps from the International Affairs Branch of U.S. Marine Corps Forces Pacific. And as we like to say with many of our guests, Zach is here today personally, and his comments and opinions represent his own and may or may not represent the views of any organizations he might be associated with. Zach, welcome to Midrats. Thank you. Great to be here. I really appreciate you taking time to, to join us here. And to kick things off, uh, just to let the, the listeners know, it, uh, I, I invited Zach on because this is just a great opportunity, uh, mostly selfishly, because I realized it was something very important that's been going on since 2015 in the Pacific. And over the course of the, the years we've been doing Midrats, we do a lot of stuff about China. We do a lot of stuff about the Pacific. And since 2015, there has been a Pacific Amphibious Leaders Symposium that the commander of U.S. Marine Corps Forces Pacific has been running. And next week, we've got the, the seventh run of PALS, if you want to use the acronym, taking place in Tokyo. And Zach, I, just kind of the, to set the scene for the listeners, you know, talk a little bit about uh, PALS itself, who's invited, uh, who are some of the players, and, and what are the, the bold-faced items that we're trying to accomplish? Yeah, sure. Glad to do that, Sal. Uh, first off, you know, Pacific Amphibious Leader Symposium, uh, or as PALS, as you described it, you know, a great reverse-engineered acronym there on the part of the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, it's really a forum uh, just to bring together our naval and amphibious leaders from across the region, and in some cases outside of the region, uh, really to share relevant topics uh, that are important to maritime security right now. Uh, you know, just for a little bit of history, as you mentioned, this is the seventh year of execution. Um, you know, we started this back in 2015 under the cognizance of Lieutenant General Tulin, 
who was at the time a commander of U.S. Marine Corps Forces Pacific. Uh, and this was, you know, a part of a wave of, um, you know, multilateral engagements that had been taking place throughout Indo-PACOM. You know, full disclosure and full credit to our Army brethren, they got the first mover advantage uh, when they implemented their uh, land pack, you know, land forces Pacific conference, uh, I believe it was back in 2014, uh, you know, but that was really a model for success. And one of the, uh, you know, a key drivers been the uh, recognition that multilateral formats are very valuable and can do a lot, uh, especially here across the Pacific, where we have so many interlocking and mutually supporting networks of alliances and partnerships uh, and frameworks. So, so the, you know, the purpose is really to bring together those folks. Uh, and then each year we discuss uh, topics and themes that we think are important. Uh, so, you know, that can range from everything from forcible entry, which is kind of a more conventional you know, amphibious task. It could be amphibious logistics or contested logistics, um, even down to humanitarian aid and disaster relief. Uh, so this year's focus is uh, the amphibious forces role in supporting peace and, peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, will be co-hosted by the Japan Ground Self-Defense Force uh, in Tokyo, Japan, coming up next week, as you mentioned. Uh, and really, you know, an important venue to reconnect leaders from across the spectrum this year. Uh, this will be our first in-person event uh, after, you know, two years of the COVID pandemic. Uh, so we think it's really important to see each other, actually engage in person again, uh, and have those substantive conversations to reinforce our network here in the Pacific. What format do you all use for this uh, symposium? I mean, is it one guy stand up and lecture, or you have a a, a different uh, approach? Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. Uh, you know, so I would say the the beauty of this is, you know, it's uh, it's very flexible. So every year, the flavor has changed a little bit, the venue has changed a little bit. Um, you know, especially during the COVID pandemic, we had to adapt it uh, quite a bit of amount to, uh, you know, accommodate for the restrictions that were in place for everybody's health. Uh, so this year's format is uh, going to be a panel type of format where we'll have some, uh, you know, opening remarks and overall, uh, you know, themes to discuss, but then we'll quickly kind of move into a panel, a series of panels that focuses on specific areas of interest. So this year's uh, panels will first cover the realms of maritime domain awareness, uh, the next will be kind of discussing our challenges to amphibious forces as we move into the future operating environment. Uh, we'll talk about how the amphibious force supports the fleet writ large. Uh, and then we'll talk about some considerations when conducting contested logistics uh, and areas where uh, multilateral cooperation can help improve our interoperability. So those will all be kind of the panel formats, you know, moderated by one of our guest speakers, uh, you know, flag officers or general officers from across the Navy, Marine Corps, uh, Coast Guard, in some cases, the Army. Uh, and they'll invite some of the panelists uh, from our partner participant countries to discuss uh, relevant topics related to their um, you know, maritime security interests. In some cases, they'll discuss recent activities such as you know, the amphibious response to the disaster in Tonga. Uh, and really, you know, just an opportunity, a venue in each panel to stimulate and generate conversation um, about how we could better support each other uh, as we advance these you know, important issues. So that's this year's format, very panel focused. Again, as I mentioned, very happy to be back in person uh, and doing these face-to-face. -face. But last year it was, it was all virtual. You know, we did these in a, in a modified format, uh, all on um, you know, unclassified uh, video teleconferences where we had 
presenters from various countries, uh, you know, keep us updated and abreast of what they were doing and what was developing with them, uh, presenting on topics of interest, um, and, you know, really trying to keep the discussion going, even if it may not be in the PALS venue itself. But in previous years, you know, we've also done this in conjunction with uh, or on the sides of RIMPAC, you know, Room of the Pacific Exercise, which occurs in even years here in the Pacific. Um, we do it uh, in conjunction with some stag displays and some demonstrations of amphibious capabilities. So one of the, you know, the, the great things about having this here at the Marfa PAC level is that we have the flexibility to kind of tailor it to our objectives and our uh, security needs each year. So uh, it's really exciting. It's a very dynamic uh, engagement. And we're increasingly bringing more uh, allies and partners into the mix. So as I mentioned, this year hosted by Japan, you know, back in 2017, we had co-hosted with Korea as well. And I think the way forward is that the venue is going to change and incorporate a lot of different perspectives based on who uh, may be helping us co-host each specific year. So really exciting times, uh, really, uh, really a lot of things in the works uh, for the future years of PALS. One of my weaknesses is I always like to uh, go to the chart, go to the map room, so to speak. And one of my favorite views of the planet is you know, roughly centered someplace south of uh, uh, Midway Island of, of our planet Earth. It's a big blue splotch known as the Pacific. It's huge. And a lot of the nations that we are allies and partners with are archipelic nations, uh, you know, going all the way from with a lots of concerns that would lend themselves to a requirement for amphibious forces, whether you're going from the, the Kuriles in the north with Japan to uh, Australia with concerns in the Timor Sea or the Indians with the Maldives. So you have a great diversity of, of climates and nations, but especially when you look in the third decade of the 21st century, as opposed to when people think about Pacific amphibious operations, it's like the Japan, Jap Imperial Japanese, um, and the Americans, but it's it's much more complicated. You have not just the United States and Japan. You have the Republic of Korea, a very rich, a very modern nation with its own security needs. Uh, you have the Filipinos, you have the Indians, you have the Indonesians, the Australians. Yeah. How do those, um, when you come into it from an American amphibious mindset, and you're right about being face-to-face -face. when you, you get to meet these people in person, you get so much more done than you do virtually. You know, talk for a little bit about, from the U.S. Marine Corps perspective, some of the, the different requirements that you have to keep top of mind when you're working with some of our allies and partners out there in the archipelic nations. Yeah, I think so. That's a great prompt, uh, you know, because... Often when we discuss uh, amphibious operations uh, writ large and specifically, you know, PALS, everybody kind of thinks naturally of the Marine Corps, right? So obviously United States Marine Corps, um, but, you know, we also think about our, our rock Marines, uh, Royal Thai Marine Corps, um, the Filipino Marine Corps, you know, the regional Marine Corps, right, are the first one that everybody thinks of, uh, which is natural and it totally makes sense. You know, those are still our, uh, some of our strongest partners and, uh, you know, the, the forces with, we, with whom we habitually interact. Uh, but as you mentioned, you know, one of the best qualities of PALS, I think, is that it brings in such a diverse uh, casting crew and with so many different interests, considerations, um, maritime security concerns, uh, and really perspectives that help us contextualize uh, that big blue dot, like you mentioned earlier, right? So, uh, you know, this, this, some of the relatively smaller partners uh, really contribute to the debate here. 
And I'll just highlight a few, you know, for this year. So we're bringing in uh, folks from Tonga, for example, like uh, we talked about, you know, recently affected by a massive uh, natural disaster. Um, but in the response to that, you know, really demonstrated the validity of having maritime domain awareness, uh, informing amphibious actions and uh, humanitarian disaster relief actions. Uh, so, you know, that's one perspective that they're bringing to the fight. You know, how can we build resilience just to the natural disasters that we know habitually occur in the region? You know, on the other far end of the spectrum, uh, you know, we're hoping to bring in some folks uh, from the Maldives, you know, so not a big, not a big force writ large and definitely, you know, uh, not, uh, you know, a force that a lot of folks consider right off the bat when they talk about contributing to maritime security, you know, but uh, training a very capable force uh, with folks uh, that we like to consider as Marines, you know, and defending an archipelagic nation um, against a wide range of threats, right? Everything from uh, law enforcement activities to, like you mentioned, uh, you know, growing climate concerns about how they're gonna build resilience, um, you know, as the climate changes and how they're gonna keep uh, their maritime security interests intact, uh, even as you know, some new actors may be on the scene. And then if you scale that up, you know, all the way to you know, folks like I mentioned earlier, our Philippine Marine Corps partners, uh, you know, our allies there in some ways are ahead of the game of what we're doing. You know, so they took um, inputs from our Fort Design 2030 that uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps has been advocating quite publicly for, uh, and they took that and they ran with it. You know, they've announced uh, last year that they're establishing a coastal defense uh, regiment under their Marine Corps, which is a part of their Navy. Uh, and they're taking those concepts that we we're talking about and they're applying them right now in, uh, in the Philippines. Uh, so in many ways, we are learning from them about some of the best practices to employ long range precision fires in a maritime fight um, and how to better do so and organize that, organize to do so uh, in the future. So a very broad uh, constellation of like-minded allies and partners in the region that have interests uh, in amphibious operations and interests in the maritime domain, not just with amphibious assaults, uh, which we often think about when it comes to the Marine Corps. Well, I, I was looking at the invitation list and I was really happy to see that you got the the Eastern Pacific countries invited, at least Chile and, uh, and uh, Ecuador and uh, let's see, Colombia and Peru. Uh, are, I hope they're going to show up because, you know, we, we always in our or mindset of, of Westpac, we always tend to forget that there's a whole bunch of people living on that uh, uh, western uh, side of South America who have been uh, good allies to us and who are, a lot of them are facing uh, serious issues like with the, the uh, Chinese fishing fleet uh, hanging around the Galapagos. Uh, and I'm sure the Ecuadorians are not real happy with that, but uh, talk a little bit about how, what, what kind of involvement you would expect from the, uh, the South American contingent. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I think we bring that up, you know, because our, uh, as we've seen, you know, our nice and tidy lines, whether they're in U.S. Indo-PACOM or, you know, Central Command, don't neatly line up with uh, how each nation views itself. Yeah, and I think if you were to ask, you know, Peru, for example, are you a Pacific nation? The answer, hands down, would be, yes, we are. You know, our economy, our prosperity, our wealth, uh, our food security all derives from the Pacific. Uh, and so what happens in the Pacific is of great interest to these South American countries, if they're, even if they're not necessarily in, you know, U.S. Indo-PACOM, as we like to fashion it. You know, I think that gets back to the, uh, the theme of this year, right? So supporting peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. You know, not everything is supporting peace and prosperity through amphibious assaults or amphibious operations, like I mentioned. 
a lot of it is uh, food security and enforcing their own economic exclusive zones, right? Uh, and you brought up the point about the Galapagos Islands. You know, that's a great um, example and a case study that kind of ties together these themes throughout PALS. It's, you know, one thing affects another. And, uh, you know, if your food and your economy depends on the ability to see and understand your uh, territorial waters, you know, and the economic exclusive zones that extend from that, uh, then yeah, of course, you know, maritime security, maritime domain awareness is essential to you. Uh, and if you're one of these smaller countries, or if you're a country that has, you know, uh, an outsized EEZ with regards to your landed territory, yeah, you look at that problem and you trigger, man, how am I going to crack this nut? How am I going to, you know, police a border or police a EEZ uh, that's maybe a hundred or 200 times larger than, than the land I have. Right. Uh, where am I going to project these forces to see uh, where am I going to base patrol vessels to you know, enforce these maritime borders? Uh, and that's, I think where we can come in, you know, we can say, we look at this problem across the mains kind of naturally just because we're the Marine Corps. Right. So it's not necessarily a problem that just based at sea, it's not one that can be uh, exclusively solved uh, through the air. And as we saw, and as we talked about earlier, there's very little land, uh, with which to operate here. So you have to kind of fuse all those domains uh, into solutions that work for our allies and partners. And the, you know, the Galapagos is a great case uh, and you know, illegal, uh, underreported, unregulated fishing is another great case study on how we can work together collaboratively uh, to tackle some of these very challenging issues. And we can really make our dollar go a lot farther than what it is uh, within each of our individual actions. Yeah. So, you know, great opportunity for those, uh, those South American Pacific facing countries, uh, a great opportunity to discuss uh, security threats that maybe not register on the top of U.S. security interests, but definitely register very highly on the interests of our allies and partners. And by extension, you know, matter very much to us. I thought the, the invitation list was, uh, it's interesting. You can almost put them in, in different circles in the Venn diagram with, with all the guests in the middle. You have uh, some of your NATO nations, yeah, United Kingdom and France, that a lot of people don't consider Pacific nations. But my memory serves me right. I think the uh, from her, you know, remaining colonial possessions, I think France has the largest EEZ in the Pacific, or you know, one of the top ones. And of course, you know, the UK has a few as well. You also have nations we have lots of bilats with, you know, the the Koreans, the the, the Japanese, the Australians. We also have the Anukas, which brings in the UK as well. And you've got pretty much all the Five Eyes nations and, you know, the previous mentioned NATO nations. And then you have a lot of nations that um, many of them are of longstanding. Some, you know, the second half of the uh, 20th century, they, they were post-colonial. Some of them were in the non-aligned movement, which we've seen things change, especially in the last 10 years for the approachability. And, and I'm curious about uh, how is our experience, not so much with, with C2, because that has a strange connotation, but um, how do we communicate with them? How do we work those uh, C2 and the communications and making sure we speak the same common language? Uh, because you could have nations that you've you know, worked with almost every day, like the, the, the British and those that you may not have worked with before, the Palau, um, you know, maritime security people, or you know, even the Brazilian Navy that we do see on occasion uh, during UNITAS. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I'll first start off with uh, you know, your analogy of the Venn diagram. I really like that framing uh, because in a lot of ways, uh, I think that's the strength of PALS, right? Uh, if you look historically, you know, the uh, security framework in the Pacific is very much uh, uh, a hub and smoke model, right? Where the U.S. is the center and from there we have bilateral security alliances, you know, with our major partners like I discussed in Australia, New Zealand, Philippines, Japan, Thailand, and our extra regional powers, you know, but one of the, the great benefits, I think, of this venue is that you know, we can create those overlapping circles on the Venn diagram and see where, you know, security interests align, see where capabilities and capacity may align, um, and see where some gaps may be aligned, you know, maybe where we can identify where uh, we have interest in one area, but maybe don't have the capacity or capability uh, you know, to address it. And maybe that's where we need to look at a collaborative solution. Uh, so yes, um, it brings together a wide net of folks, um, that constellation like we like to talk about. And it definitely uh, is a great forum in of itself to advance some of those topics. And you know, when you talk about the, you know, the scale and the breadth and depth of relationship that we have with some of the countries, you're right, it does vary, very greatly. You know, so for some of our five I countries, uh, you know, under the ABCANS framework, our interoperability is very deliberate, you know, very um, coordinated and very well planned from information sharing to uh, systems and technical interoperability, uh, all the way down to that human level of interoperability, right? How do our processes, procedures, how do our interactions work? How do our communications flow? Uh, with some of our partners, we're very aligned across all those uh, elements, right? Uh, and some we're not, and that's completely fine. You know, we don't expect uh, everybody to buy the same equipment that we have or to use the same processes or procedures. Uh, there's, you know, there's strength in our diversity with these partners. Uh, and we want to see how they do it. And we want to see uh, how we can do it better, maybe to help them uh, get after their maritime security interests. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily have to be at that same level with all the partners, but you're right, you know, creating that uh, common framework and common venue to discuss these problems is a challenge. Uh, PALS is one of those venues, I'd argue, you know, uh, for some of these countries, this might be our only uh, in-person engagement that, you know, uh, U.S. Marine Corps Force Pacific uh, may have, uh, you know, especially when it comes to uh, some of the outlying countries, such as the Maldives, uh, Brunei, for example. Uh, so in of itself, it's a great venue. And maybe through that, you know, we can create the uh, opportunities and recognize the demand for maybe greater levels of interoperability uh, in venues to be confirmed down the line. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, Palau real briefly there. Uh, and I think that's a case study worth identifying, you know. So Palau, you know, still very much a member of the, uh, the Compact of Free Association, the COFA, right? So it is a COFA state uh, along with uh, the Republic of Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia. Uh, you know, so it falls kind of within the U.S. security framework uh, as, as far as policy and agreements go. Uh, but very much, you know, a very proud and independent country and one that we work with uh, a great deal on maritime security interests. So, you know, every year, Mafor um, PAC and specifically uh, the first Marine Expeditionary Force uh, sends out this task force called Koa Moana into the Pacific. And increasingly they've been going to Oceania, uh, you know, to do just that, to help advance our interoperability and uh, advance our cooperation with some of these smaller Pacific Island countries. And, uh, you know, that has been informed by PALS, by interactions at PALS. And I think uh, reciprocally, you know, it informs our engagement in PALS and what we should discuss. So maritime domain awareness is a great example you bring up. Um, 
as we discussed, you know, very crucial to amphibious operations and maritime security writ large, and uh, an area uh, that also impacts uh, illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing. Um, so, you know, a confluence of interests where Palau is definitely interested in easy enforcement, maritime domain awareness, uh, and patrolling its own borders through maritime domain awareness. And an area we identified, uh, you know, through PALS and through these engagements that we could help contribute with Task Force Kuala Moana. Um, and, you know, even through the pandemic and through these uh, limitations, you know, they've been still regularly engaging to help build uh, capacity uh, at the Palau local level and within the Palau government to increase their maritime domain awareness capabilities and help them better enforce their own EEC. So it's, you know, it's a, a confluence of goodness here where uh, our exercise and activities uh, help generate some of that interoperability and help identify areas where we can cooperate better. Uh, and then PALS is the venue where we can feed back those uh, the opportunities and really give it some direction for the future years out. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, but overall, you know, a great opportunity to uh, overlay those Venn diagrams and overlay those uh, mutually supporting areas of interest. Well, I find it as a as a as a kid, I lived on Guam, and I, I learned pretty early the the value of the sea lines of communication. But uh, and I think most of the countries that you have listed here are all pretty much uh, dependent on, uh, like most of us are these days, uh, on ocean. The, the oceans being free so they can get the, as you said, the food security and all the rest of it. Is there, is there a problem convincing people back in, in the U.S. That, to get over their sea blindness and take a look at why this, this uh, level of cooperation uh, matters and uh, how it should probably even be enhanced by, uh, by other arrangements like this? Yeah, you know, it's definitely a, a difficult issue, right? Because just like uh, how we talked about amphibious operations and PALS being kind of a Marine Corps-centric thing, you know, people look at PALS and say, oh, that's a Marine Corps issue. Uh, you know, when you look at uh, IUUF or illegal unreported unregulated fishing, you know, people look at it and say like, um, you know, that maybe is a Coast Guard issue, uh, but maybe not even necessarily a U.S. Coast Guard issue. Um, and there's some validity to that, right? You know, the U.S. Coast Guard has lead. They published their... Um, their strategy for combating IUUF, which I think is great. Um, you know, a lot of distinguished writers have talked about how IUUF impacts maritime security awareness. Uh, you know, Captain Walker Mills from the United States Marine Corps has been very prolific on that. A lot of leading, uh, you know, navalists have been discussing the topic. Um, and I think there's a, a ground swelling recognition that uh, IUUF is a vector for some malign influence. Uh, and, you know, one where we as a tri-service Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard have a lot of issues in uh, interest in combating. Uh, so I think, you know, from the policy level all the way down to our level, uh, we're realizing uh, the importance of combating IUF and combating a lot of these threats uh, that we had either previously, you know, not prioritized and not recognized as the highest threat um, or conversely, you know, thought of them as, uh, you know, a persistent kind of low-lying issue, but one which would not really impact amphibious operations or uh, security in the maritime domain. You know, but the environment is changing. And like you mentioned, um, you know, we have to adapt with it as well. So I think, uh, I think there's a growing recognition that we all need to contribute. And I think PALS is a really a forum to figure out, you know, how we can best contribute. Uh, as our commandant said, you know, we don't want to tell our allies and partners, uh, we do it this way, so you should do it that way also. I think one of the the values of PALS is that we can learn from them. Hey, what are you doing and how can we better support you? 
you know, what niche capabilities could you benefit from uh, by just us telling you how we think we can help uh, police your waters or EZs. And so that's really an area of interest. You know, we can get some of the nuance there communicated in person. We can get some of that mutual understanding on uh, what we have to offer, uh, what may be required, uh, and how we can collaboratively, you know, bring those uh, capabilities to great effect in the Pacific. So yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunity. Um, I think the moment is ripe to reassess our uh, preconceived notions on maritime security. Uh, and I think, you know, to be honest, PALS is the venue to do that. You know, we have the senior leadership from across, uh, you know, more than 20 countries that we already discussed. We have senior leadership from, you know, across the joint force, whether that's, uh, you know, Marfor Pack internal on our 1MEF and 3MEF, uh, whether that's, uh, you know, U.S. Pacific Fleet and 3rd Fleet and 7th Fleet, um, whether that's our representatives within U.S. Coast Guard, our sub-unified commands in U.S. Forces Korea, you know, we have great interest from across the joint force uh, and within our allies and partners to advance these topics with the key leaders who represent uh, the services who matter in maritime domain awareness and maritime domain security. You know, some, some may say it's just semantics, but, but words mean things because they focus the mind. And I remember back, I think it was 2018 when he was Secretary of Defense, um, James Mattis, he changed Pacific Command to Indo-PACOM to emphasize uh, the the connection between a lot of the uh, concerns and needs of the Indian Ocean area and the Pacific area, uh, especially with what developed with uh, Australia and India last few years. It makes a lot of makes a lot of sense. And we talked about the Maldives recently. That's right smack dab in the middle of the Indian Ocean. When we we think more about not just the Pacific and you know, we've talked about the concerns of the Eastern Pacific. And of course, one of the fun things I like to tease my Canadian friends is like, you're a Pacific nation too. <laughs> you just got the cold part. Um, the, the, the interest in and the additional focus on the concerns in the Indian Ocean area, uh, how does that fold into the conversation with PALS as it's developed through the years? And um, in a few areas, we've seen additional coordination with uh, the the Indian national security structure have they come into play in pals more in the last few years as well? Yeah, that's a great question, Sal. You know, I think uh, as you mentioned, words definitely matter, uh, and they're a realization and a recognition of you know things that always were. So uh, while we didn't change the boundaries or change the area responsibilities for U.S. Indo PACOM, uh, you know, the name now reflects the fact that yes, we are uh, concerned. Uh, with the Indian Ocean region. Uh, yes, the Indian Ocean region's uh, maritime security definitely impacts uh, the rest of the Pacific Ridge at large. Um, and they're an important pillar, you know, in our security um, in this area that covers, you know, half the world's population and almost half the world's area. Uh, so yes, we are increasingly um, welcoming of those Indian Ocean perspectives on maritime security. And I think uh, to your earlier point, you know, is, is security cooperation growing? Is it, uh, you know, is it changing? I think always, yeah, of course it's changing. Of course we're uh, assessing, you know, the way forward. Um, but, you know, some may not recognize it, but the Marine Corps has had a, uh, albeit small footprint, you know, but a persistent presence um, in the Indian Ocean region as well. You know, uh, <laughs> a fun, fun nugget I think that often gets overlooked is that, you know, we helped uh, the Sri Lanka Marine Corps establish basically uh, through our transiting uh, West Coast Marine Expeditionary Unit. So, um, you know, through 
efforts and collaboration in 2016 and 2017, you know, we helped uh, establish uh, the Sri Lankan Marine Corps within their Navy. Uh, but right, that's a, that's a very small drop in the bucket if you look at the Indian Ocean region, right? And I think we are increasingly realized that, uh, you know, we as the Marine Corps can definitely not uh, do all things in the Indian Ocean region by ourselves. I think that's a, a persistent recognition in the Marine Corps that we all need to be part of a joint effort, right? Uh, but even within that joint effort, uh, whether it's through engagements with, you know, uh, PACAF or PAC Fleet or even U.S. Indo-PACOM, you know, our joint effort really benefits from the inclusion of uh, those major regional players, like you mentioned, right? So India, obviously, of course, being the, the key player, uh, but Sri Lanka, Maldives, you know, even uh, Bangladesh to a great extent, right? They're going through some modernization as well. Uh, and they are, you know, a a important but often overlooked pillar in security, especially with the regional instability uh, on that border between South Asia and Southeast Asia. So yes, we're definitely realizing that uh, one, we can't do it alone. We need to work with our allies and partners. Uh, and two, you know, we need to really figure out you know, the best way going forward to collaboratively uh, contribute to the security in the commons, right? Because uh, it's very hard for us to get to project force into the Indian Ocean region, right? Whether you're coming from the West Coast of the United States or even from the East Coast. Uh, but for some of our allies and partners, they're already there and they're persistently there. You know, in addition to India and the, the folks located in the region, uh, you mentioned, you know, France and the United Kingdom. Uh, so also, you know, although they don't have uh, uh, a whole lot of territory uh, in those regions, they also have a persistent presence uh, and are key contributors to maritime domain awareness, maritime domain security in the Indian Ocean region. Uh, and we better we want to you know, better include those perspectives and those capabilities when we look at the region as a whole. So yeah, I think you're right. Uh, again, I, I pivot back to the fact that this is a venue to bring in those perspectives and to uh, bring in those capabilities so that we can better collaborate and better cooperate going forward. Um, and even if we don't have the answers right now on where we're going, uh, this is a venue to help determine our collective interests and collective way forward. I'm, I'm at I'm interested in the in the follow up after these uh, after these symposiums. Are, do you guys follow up and, and see uh, what type of activities some of the people who attend these are are engaged in? I mean, are, do you notice more? Do you follow up to see if Japan is cooperating more with uh, with uh, Tonga than they used to? Or I mean, is that or you just does that just part of the normal uh, course of business? I'm, I'm interested in what the outcomes of the of the symposium are from where you sit. Right, right. Great question, right? Because if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to uh, ride it in the minutes, then, you know, does it really ever happen? Uh, <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> the PAL specifically, right, you know, so we don't have, um, uh, you know, a running list of action items uh, as output from PALs. Uh, you know, so some of our other uh, regional MARFORs, like MARFOR URAP, I'll call it specifically, you know, Marine Forces Europe and Africa, uh, they run a great program, uh, very analogous to PALs. It's called ALES. You know, so very fitting to our uh, Northern European friends there. But the Amphibious Leaders uh, Symposium, you know, is that, you know, kind of brings in those action items and advances interoperability with, uh, you know, a select handful of NATO partners and allies. Um, whereas we are a little more distributed, right? And PALS is a little bit more multilateral uh, and covers a very diverse uh, group of folks. So we don't come out of the symposium itself with a list of action items. Uh, but the benefit we do have is that you know, those uh, general officer and flag officer engagements carry a lot of weight and have a lot of uh, momentum behind them. So that's one of the things I specifically like about my job here 
uh, in the plans and posture division of uh, US workforce specific is that as international engagements branch, you know, we take those collective uh, visions uh, and we translate those into kind of uh, operational capabilities or operational um, you know, ways forward. So although they may not be captured in the minutes from PALS or they may not be captured as a, a, an agreed to action, um, you know, we take that guidance, we take those intent, we take the outputs of those conversations with key leaders, uh, either in multilateral venues or bilateral discussions. Um, and then we output that, right? We take that vision, we take that intent, uh, informed by collaborative discussion on these relevant topics, informed by very different perspectives on security we have in the region. And then we input that into the appropriate place. So whether that's, uh, you know, an activity or an engagement, uh, you know, the outputs from previous pals have definitely informed uh, the activities uh, that we generate in the, in the out years. So, you know, whether that's ways forward on uh, deploying our forces unilaterally, like our West Coast Muse or our 31st Spring Expression Unit, uh, or even something uh, like Murphy, you know, the way forward for Marine Rotational Forces Darwin. You know, those engagements and these discussions definitely help inform the way forward on those uh, exercises, deployments, and activities. Uh, you know, we can also take those outputs into our uh, bilateral and multilateral staff talks. So just like how we have a web of uh, security frameworks that overlap each other like a Venn diagram, we also have uh, a constellation of staff talks, staff engagements, uh, and planning conferences uh, with many, if not all of our uh, allies and partners represented in PALS. So we take those outputs, we take those discussions, take the vision generated by our senior leader engagement, um, and then we inject that into uh, you know, very tangible metrics through our staff talks. Uh, again, those could be operations activities, they could be investments, uh, they could be uh, agreed to actions in cooperating on force design and modernization, uh, posture initiatives, so on and so forth. Uh, so you know, from our perspective here, it's really a cross-functional uh, multi-domain effort. So we may not be the proponent for everything within uh, the plans division within G5. We may not be the proponent for everything uh, at Moffer Pack as a whole, um, you know, but we can inform those interactions uh, going forward to make sure that the right folks are captured, the right folks are included in the conversation, uh, and the right folks are brought in to really advance uh, those initiatives, if that makes sense. I wanted to, to I don't want this to devolve into a, an English lesson or anything, but as a, uh... As a former plans guy myself, speaking planner to planner, I know you're you're comfortable about arguing about specific words and uh, using one word vice the other because it does make a difference. Um, you know, back right, when I right. was, yep, yep uh, one of our favorite activities over beers. Uh, when back when I was a midshipman, uh, the Marine Corps, you know, everything was amphibious, and then something happened when I was a JO, and. Uh, amphibious was replaced with expeditionary and that's one thing when i i was doing the show prep i kept looking at the the a it's like huh amphibious and i i realized we are starting to talk about amphibious more and just you know as a as a a marine corps planner you know we're almost seeing uh, a renaissance in the use of amphibious vice expeditionary and occasionally and i, I kind of get itchy about it people use them analogous interchangeably and in amphibious versus expeditionary is this just a fashion thing or is there uh an intellectual foundation to amphibious versus expeditionary that people should be aware of when they use them 
Yeah, great question, Sal. Uh, you know, to start off with, uh, we had this debate also, you know, whether we should change the name of PALS, uh, but really, you know, it would uh, ruin our perfectly crafted acronym, right? So it would be PALS instead of PALS and just ruin the whole, the whole scheme there. So, uh, you know, we decided to stick with PALS, uh, but you're right, you know, there is a healthy debate to be had about what is amphibious uh, versus what is expeditionary. And to get to your point about the historical context, uh, yeah, you know, I think the Marine Corps writ large, and I'm just speaking from my perspective here, I think the Marine Corps writ large uh, has been moving away from amphibious more towards uh, expeditionary, right? Our uh, Marine amphibious force uh, that went into Vietnam uh, came out as the Marine Expeditionary Force. Our uh, amphibious warfare school for captains and junior officers became an expeditionary warfare school, right? Uh, so I think it was a growing recognition that um, amphibious forces or Marine Corps-like forces you know, have utility outside of the narrow application of amphibious operations. Uh, so, you know, we can contribute to fights in land, we can contribute to the fights uh, in the air in a lot of ways, um, and we can persist there a little bit longer than what is implied through amphibious operations. Uh, but within that construct, even, I think we are seeing that amphibious operations themselves uh, are growing from what we originally considered, right? Uh, so by, you know, joint, uh, excuse me, by joint doctrine and definition, uh, you know, amphibious operations is a, a operation from the ship to the shore, right? Uh, to rapidly gain combat power ashore, you know, the classic EWS uh, phrases. Uh, but, you know, amphibious means, I think, a lot more now. You know, it could be, like I mentioned, everything ranging from uh, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, that could be sea-based initiatives, um, it could be the classic amphibious assault. Uh, it could be just an amphibious landing. Uh, it could be a joint forcible entry operation. Uh, so it's more than you know just landing at Iwo Jima in 1945. Uh, and I think even at our level within Law for PAC, uh, we're looking at potentially expanding that that scope of the term, right? So uh, you know maybe is it just a, a ship to shore operation? Maybe it's a shore to shore operation. Maybe it's a shore to ship operation. Uh, or maybe it's uh, an operation like a counterlanding uh, type of scenario where, uh, yes, it involves ship-to-shore movement. It may also involve shore-to-shore movement. Uh, it may be unopposed, but it may be uh, to defend uh, within the maritime domain against a, a, you know, a invading amphibious threat. So I think we're looking at expanding the term of amphibious itself uh, without necessarily changing it or breaking it or scrapping it writ large. Um, but I don't think also we don't want to get away from expeditionary because we have to remember that is our mindset, right? And we generate readiness and we project it across the world. So I don't think there's any discussion of our Marine expeditionary units changing the name uh, or changing back to amphibious. I think more so it's a recognition that uh, we contribute more to the maritime domain uh, than just what the name amphibious applies. And I think that's reflected in our third uh, Marine littoral regiment. You know, that's uh, reflected in force design you know, that forces ashore, which are expeditionary, you know, themselves, you know, contribute to the maritime domain, uh, contribute to a naval campaign. Um, and by doing so, maybe they in themselves are more amphibious uh, than our narrow current definition implies. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm sitting here thinking about amphibious stuff. And I remember the huge number of amphibs that uh, off Vietnam that that sailed around in a diamond formation and uh, we're always in the way of everybody trying to do flight ops and conduct gunfire stuff. Anyway, that's a, that's a long time ago, but I'm, I'm curious as to how many of the countries that, that you're uh, 
are involved in PALS have some kind of uh, amphibious uh, capability. I mean, I, I know the, the Australians have those, uh, form, what, mistral uh, things they got from France, I think. And, uh, uh, but, and I'm not sure who else has got, uh, you know, LHAs and all the rest of it. Is this, is, is that obviously not required to be part of PALS, but uh, is, is there a, are there countries there that have significant amphibious capabilities? that has been well hidden from me. Oh yeah, you bring up a topic that is uh, near and dear to my heart and you know, it's been in the focus of one of our um, ongoing initiatives here in the G5. So yeah, you know, definitely um, there are many partners, I think many surprisingly so who have amphibious capabilities. So, you know, if you start off with, uh, you know, some of our, um, you know, uh, longer lasting allies and uh, historic allies, you know, the United Kingdom and France, for example, uh, you're right, you know, France has the uh, three Mistral class, uh, uh, LHDs, you know, helicopter landing docks, uh, and they regularly bring those to the Pacific as well. You know, uh, we just had great success cooperating with them uh, in their mission Jean d'Arc in 2021. So even through the height of the pandemic, you know, they deployed an amphibious force out here in the Pacific, uh, and for the first time in maybe you know 60, 70 years, uh, cooperated in exercise with uh, the United States Marine Corps and the Japan Ground Self Defense Force in Japan itself. Uh, so, you know, breaking grounds with the realms of international engagements and amphibious capability. Uh, the UK, for example, you know, great uh, amphibious power, you know, one of the first amphibious powers, uh, which from which we derive a lot of our uh, customs and courtesies and histories, right? Uh, so similarly in 2021, uh, we deployed a force uh, cooperatively out here to the Indo-Pacific through their carrier strike group 21 with the Queen Elizabeth. Uh, so not an uh, amphibious operation in the classic technical sense, um, but, you know, they did embark um, F-35, United States Marine Corps F-35s uh, on the Queen Elizabeth and contributed to a lot of maritime the wing, uh, maritime security initiatives out here in the, in the Pacific. So, you know, those are some of our higher end partners. You mentioned Australia also. Yeah, definitely, you know, that Australia's got uh, the two Canberra class uh, LHDs, um, and we love working with them also, you know. And while they don't have a dedicated Marine Corps, um, we see a lot of value in cooperating with them in the amphibious realm. Uh, and I think we as a Marine Corps are a good partner for their force. You know, uh, we're both kind of inherently joint by nature and design. Uh, and we're a great natural partner for Australia. Uh, but, you know, if you look across the spectrum, yeah, it's very diverse. And uh, there are a lot of cable forces. You know, New Zealand's got the HMNZS Canterbury, right? So you necessarily wouldn't think of New Zealand as an amphibious force, but while their capacity is small, you know, they do have the capability. And just to highlight some of the other folks we have in the region, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, uh, the Maldives earlier with the regional Marine Corps, I mentioned Sri Lanka with the regional Marine Corps, um, you know, folks like Indonesia, the Corps Marineer uh, are definitely a capable force. And while their force is more optimized towards, um, you know, archipelagic operations, just like the Filipinos, um, very capable with a lot of LSTs, you know, a lot of those, those classic, uh, capabilities that I think we in the United States Marine Corps are now recognizing are very vital to an archipelagic fight. Uh, so landing ship tanks very much akin to our desired light amphibious warships uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, but across the spectrum, there are folks who are realizing uh, that, yes, you know, that, that uh, beautiful harmonious marriage between the Army and the Navy uh, needs to take place in order to advance, uh, one, their national interests, and I think, too, like you mentioned earlier, is to contribute to our collective interest in the maritime domain. And I think, you know, we're seeing a very virtuous circle right now uh, with land forces and 
naval forces and even a lot of air forces in some ways uh, cooperating to achieve security in the maritime domain. I don't know if it's a union rule or not, but uh, I think somewhere if you're interviewing a Marine, you have to mention the Commandant at least once, but this, this actually ties in. Um, I think it's clear now that you know, this pal's meeting is going to be face-to-face. It's, it's hard to ignore what everybody has looked, not everybody, but most people in the national security arena are, have been looking since February at what's going on in Ukraine. And Commandant Berger, he did an interview uh, back in March with uh, David Ignatius over at the Washington Post. And I just wanted to pull a couple of quotes from him here. And, and, and I want to try to tie them together with something that has, has been a, a regular topic of us here, and that's logistics. But also there's trying to figure out, uh, and I think it's, it's great what the Marine Corps is doing is, is everybody else is, and I'll say it so you don't have to, well, everybody else is, is picking their belly button and second guessing what their strategy should be. The, the Marine Corps said, uh, this is what we think we need to do. We're going to march forward and do what we can with the, with, the, with the rope we've been given to do it with. And that has generated a lot of very constructive, uh, creative friction, I think. Uh, it's been nice to see, but a lot of those decisions that not just the Marines are making, but the Army, the Navy, everything else, it derives from models, war gaming, and as, as you know, with war games, what are your planning assumptions, everything else, you, you can do a lot with them. But he had the following to say about, um, specifically, he was speaking about why, from both the Russian perspective and in the American perspective, things in Ukraine didn't work out well. And here's a little quote from him, quote, computer modeling helps in some regards, but I would say if you ran the computer model on the Russian military versus Ukraine military, it would it would give you a certain answer that said it probably wouldn't last all that long. He's speaking of the, the invasion back to the, the commandant, but that's obviously not what's happening. And the reason I start there is models, computer models can't of course factor in the human element. And later on, they go and talk about uh, something my co-host knows from a, a previous conflict on the other side of the Pacific and that's logistics. And he was speaking specifically about some of the glaring logistic challenges that appeared pretty fast during the invasion, uh, going back to the Commandant, quote, I don't know if it's hubris on the part of Russian planners and leaders or just an assumption that the operation would not take very long and therefore no need to stack up logistics, unquote. Is that something that uh, as a planner, I know you in the foreshop, um, are thinking and rethinking that, but is, is this an issue that our allies and partners, uh, you think, whether PALs or other venues, are going to be looking for answers for about our ability to cross and sustain the, the Pacific? And what are some of the, the thoughts that the, the Marine Corps has about some of the equipment that they may need or they need to repurpose in order to reflect some of those requirements that really the, the Ukraine conflict so far has brought into stark contrast. Yeah, great prompt, uh, great quote. And, uh, you know, I think a great area for discussion. Um, you know, Connor, the Marine Corps General Burgers, for example, 2030 has really, I think, been a watershed moment for us here uh, in the region writ large, not just in the Marine Corps and Marfor Pack. But as I mentioned earlier, our allies and partners have really taken that as a cue 
uh, to reassess their own force design, their own structure, uh, and their own capabilities that they may need uh, in the future operating environment. And I think we're seeing a lot of confluence interest right here. Uh, you mentioned logistics, right? Uh, so not only was uh, General Berger formerly the commander of Marfor Pack, he himself hosted, um, you know, Pacific Amphibious Leaders Symposium a few times here. When he was the host in uh, 2018, the focus was amphibious logistics uh, of PALS 2018. And this year, it's also a, an area of discussion in one of our panels, right? Contested logistics. So I think the comment has been very clear on this, that logistics is the pacing function in the Indo-Pacific region, right? And uh, we need to figure out how we're going to do that with our allies and partners. Uh, and he's made that very clear. You know, and I think when it comes to uh, looking at solutions to that problem, I think we've increasingly realized that it's not just capabilities, um, but it's really also ally and partner capabilities and interests as well. And we've realized we need to work uh, towards gaining unity of effort in both regards. Uh, so one, like I mentioned earlier, you know, surprising when you look at the amount of uh, amphibious capability that exists in the region currently, you know, whether that's uh, landing ship tanks or LHAs or LHDs, uh, or in a lot of cases, army watercraft that are meant to be intra-theater connectors. Uh, there are a lot of capabilities within the region right now that our allies and partners uh, leverage on a daily basis to sustain their forces uh, and to conduct their mission on a daily basis. So one, I think we can at very least, you know, capture the best practices and lessons learned from how they're doing it uh, in the priority theater. Um, two, that may be, that may inform how we look at, uh, you know, onboarding capabilities such as the light amphibious warship or some maybe intra-theater connectors and so on and so forth. Uh, or three, it also looks at, um, you know, how we may be collaboratively bringing together that constellation of logistic capabilities to support things like the standing force uh, or expeditionary advanced space operations. And I think, you know, as we collectively move forward, um, that synergy is going to be increasingly important. Uh, and to get to your, you know, your, your final point, you kind of mentioned about uh, learning and understanding for our partners. Yeah, I think for a long time, we looked at it through the lens of technical uh, and systems interoperability, procedural interoperability, uh, you know, but at least from our perspective, at least from my perspective, uh, as an international affairs Marine and as a, a regional affairs officer, I think we really gain a lot of benefit from looking at it from a human perspective. And the better, you know, our people can understand uh, the uh, forces and the people of our allies and partners, you know, the better we can understand the issues they're dealing with and the capabilities they have on hand uh, to solve some of these very vexing problems. So, you know, I think if we can advance uh, that human to human um, interoperability, we then derive a lot of uh, unity of effort in very uh, difficult and challenging situations such as contested logistics. So, you know, the better we understand our allies and partners, the better we're working with them on a daily basis to leverage and understand their, um, their amphibious shipping, uh, their distribution networks, uh, the ways which they procure supplies and distribute those supplies, you know, the better we can help them on a daily basis uh, and better cooperate, see, better cooperate with them going forward. So, yeah, you know, to beat the drum, uh, as the commandant says, logistics is the pacing function in the Indo-Pacific. And we are looking at many ways uh, to overcome the tyranny of time and space uh, to operationalize that vision here. Um, and just to end it off here, you know, I think the case study I mentioned earlier about Tonga is a great example of how um, maritime forces have contributed in the past uh, and ways in which we may need to contribute in the future. You know, it, 
is probably going to have to be informed by uh, you know very specific and targeted maritime domain awareness, with the recognition that we can't uh, you know persistently uh, survey the the vast oceans uh, in the Indo-Pacom AOR, but we can target those capabilities to understand a very dynamic and emerging situation uh, with our constellation of allies and partners, you know, kind of positioned around the world in any moment of any day. Uh, we can rapidly bring to bear maritime forces that can support that crisis or respond to that crisis. And, you know, with our very diverse capabilities that each country bring, uh, we can contribute in ways uh, that are greater than the sum of our parts. Uh, and even better if we can do so under you know, a cooperative or a collaborative command and control infrastructure that helps best, you know, allocate those resources to the problems as they emerge. Um, so, you know, is it perfect? No. Can we get better? Yes. And uh, do these venues help us get better? Definitely. And I think PALS is just one of the many ways uh, in which we can get after that Commandant's vision of Forcing 2030 and its associated challenges. Yeah, that's. I, I think you made excellent points. I, I want to apologize to the Australians. I, I forgot that the Canberra and the Adelaide were uh, designed for them specifically. We're not the Mistrals that went to Egypt. Um, but I wanted to hit on something you just said. I, you know, one of the important aspects of these meetings is people to people, and and I, I think that the humanitarian uh, and disaster response abilities of the amphibious forces that are available in the Pacific are, are really key to that. And I, I'm glad to hear that the Marine Corps takes that that uh, mission and concept very seriously because of all the other stuff that people see that, you know, they don't they don't want to watch people do armed uh, practice landings. They want to, you know, when they have a problem, they want somebody to come and help them out. So I think that their example of Tonga and then we had the uh, We've had a few other things where we've had our U.S. Navy forces and other forces come in and help people out. Uh, I think that's a really important component. And I assume that's a major topic uh, uh, and a benefit of these of these PALS uh, symposiums is that people get a chance to to talk about what their needs might be in the event of of some natural disaster. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think. We, the Navy enterprise at large, right? So both Department of Navy, Marine Corps Navy, uh, I think often don't give ourselves enough credit for the capacity and the capabilities that we could bring to bear uh, in some of these crises. You know, uh, the classic is, you know, the 2004 uh, response to Aceh. Um, so even though Marine forces were not uh, there because, you know, we were responding to uh, the crisis in Iraq, um, you know, the U.S. Navy's capabilities and capacity that they brought to that response you know, alongside the rest of the uh, regional navies uh, and militaries that supported that response, uh, you know, it was uh, amazing, outstanding, right? You know, really unprecedented in many ways. And then you follow that up uh, several years later with the maritime response to uh, the earthquake, the natural disaster, uh, and the following, uh, you know, man-made disasters at Fukushima Daiichi uh, and Operation Tomodachi uh, or any one of the many... Um, you know, natural disasters that have hit the Philippines, unfortunately, in the last few years. Uh, you know, amphibious forces and maritime forces are inherently versatile, uh, inherently responsive, um, and you can do a lot of things with them. You know, as the commandant mentioned, you know, you have capabilities in the back of a well deck in an LHD or LPD. Uh, the adversary may not know what those are, um, but we definitely know what those are, and they can be very capable and they can be very diverse to respond to a wide range of scenarios. 
I think Palace just highlights a lot of folks that uh, we can do everything from, you know, the high end war funding, if necessary, uh, to humanitarian assistance, disaster response, or on the very low level, you know, that persistent engagement and contributing to uh, security in the maritime commons, whether through enforcement of EEZs uh, or helping our partners build capacity in uh, maritime domain awareness uh, and policing their own EEZs. So yeah, as our comment says, right, uh, you know, we do it all. As our commander at Marfor Pack says, you know, we do everything from F-35s to infantry. Um, and as a previous Indo-Pacom commander said, uh, you know, we do Hollywood of Bollywood, polar bears and penguins. Uh, so the, the range of activities is very diverse. The spectrum uh, that we operate within is very diverse as well, uh, all the way from the high end to the low end. Um, and, you know, we like to offer that this is uh, our contribution to maintaining maritime security uh, in any one of those areas on the spectrum. Well, Zach, it's been uh, a great hour uh, having a chance to talk about uh, the Palace Conference. Now, I just offer to the listener, if you wanted to, to keep track of what the Pacific Marines are doing and, and what Zach's observations are, you can find them on, on Twitter at Zach underscore OTA. Um, also, if people wanted to keep track of you, are there other places they could look at or if they want to keep track of what uh, the Marines are doing in the Pacific, where's a good place for people to keep an eyeball? Right, yeah, thanks for the prompt. Uh, you know, I'll always divert back to... Uh, you know, our Twitter website here at uh, Mar4Pack, which is Pacific Marines, uh, you know, not only on Twitter, but they're also uh, active on Facebook and uh, Instagram as well. Uh, so, you know, they have definitely the best pulse. We have a great team down there uh, in our strategic communications branch, uh, and they definitely keep uh, the world abroad uh, appraised of the good work we're doing here at Mar4Pack. So definitely recommend Pacific Marines on Twitter and your associated uh, Facebook and Instagram portfolios. Excellent. And uh, again, thanks, Zach, very much. Uh, lots of great information today. And I uh, look forward to the opportunity again sometime in the future. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure and honor. Yeah, happy to talk about the Marine Corps anytime, any day. <laughs> thanks, Zach. And thank you very much, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. And until next time, hope you have a great Navy and Marine Corps day. Cheers. It's a long, long way to Tipperary.